Assalamualaikum and welcome to the Inclusive Mosque Initiative podcast. What you're about to hear is the talk that Dr. Amina Wadud did for us at the first of our seminar series called Raise Your Gaze, Islamic Feminisms in Focus. This talk took place on the 16th of September 2017 at St. Ethelburgers in London and the next one hopefully will be in December this year as well. Enjoy the talk, see you soon. There we go, I feel better. A'udhu billahi min rajim Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim I begin as I always begin, in the name of Allah, whose grace I seek in this and all other matters. You will notice that I'm going to give this talk without any notes, and that's because in uh, the last five or six years, I've had um, several opportunities to talk about Islamic feminism. And after a while, there's only a certain number of points that you need to hit, and so, for this talk, I'm going to give you a little bit of personal location, uh, <clears throat> which I try to do you know, for everything. Um, <clears throat> and because I am going to be personally located in the other three uh, components of the talk, some of that personal location will come in again somewhat anecdotally. Um, I'm then going to also talk about the history of uh, you know, what is now considered to be Islamic feminism, to contextualize it in um, global movements and particularly in the context of reform Islam. And I'm going to um, talk about methodology uh, because trying to understand you know, this sort of distinctive uh, component of feminism or this distinctive component of Islam, I think requires us to understand a little bit about um, you know, fine tuning how it is actually applied. And then I'm gonna actually talk about some of the utility of it, that is some of the examples of how it's being put to use um, and what I'm hoping you will do for me is that during uh, question and answers, anything that I kind of skirted over too quickly um, that seemed a little bit provocative or um, in some way challenging or just interesting, you know, let me know and I can elaborate further when we come to the Q&A. Um, and the other thing is because I am personally located in this as a cisgendered female, I have not vetted myself for every single word about whether or not I am equally inclusive in terms of um, other locations from the LBGTQI community. And that is also, I think, contextually um, significant because working for uh, what we used to call gender reform was primarily within the context of um, heteronormativity and the questions about the diversity of uh, the human being in terms of their um, sexual uh, identities and gender locations was not yet a part of it, even though that's you know, where I am trying to be located. It means that sometimes when I hark back to some of the things that we experienced as we were going along, there are questions that can be asked about the extent to which it is completely inclusive. Um, and I think that's important. I think it's important for me to let you know that I may slip into certain presumptions of heteronormativity because that was the way in which the gender movement was shaped but that is not where it is finished. So I'm asking you to call me to task on it during the Q&A for, for you know, anything that seems to be, especially, I, I don't think it's going to be something that will be offensive, but just the presumption um, of heteronormativity is in fact um, a form of exclusion. Um, so I actually identify as an Islamic feminist and I have not identified as a feminist for even a full decade. So I am aware of transformation, uh, at least in my case, why I felt that I could make the transformation and why, in fact, I resisted the title of feminist 
up until 2009. Um, and it's funny because I actually have the moment almost in which I sort of came out as a feminist, which was the launching of the Musawa movement. And, and I'll talk about that a little bit um, in more detail. So my resistance to the term is because of what we now know as intersectionality and that the way the feminist movement had been shaped globally, especially when you come from you know, the, the global north, so anywhere Europe, UK, North America, is that it addressed the needs of those who were first able to articulate it. And so there were certain class, race, and religious orientations that were not sufficiently inclusive of me when the time came for me to think about it. So in fact, I resisted the term. And if you look at my writings up until 2006, I actually um, argue against the application of the term. So um, I think it's kind of a fun thing to keep growing, to keep learning, to keep challenging yourself. And so this is all about you know, sort of meeting the challenge and how I came to the point where I could be comfortable uh, in it after so much um, resistance. Um, so my first teaching position was at the International Islamic University in Malaysia. And um, I'm not saying that the experience at the university was necessarily uh, exemplary of anything that I want to uh, you know, promote, <clears throat> but two things happened there that I think is important. And one is that that is when I came outside, or maybe I should say from behind the desk of academia and began the activism of my career. And that activism now has shaped everything that I do. I cannot do something just for the theory and the theology alone, which as a nerd I particularly love, but um, I have to think about its potential impact. And that's sometimes crippling because, uh, for example, now I'm doing research on LBGTQI and human dignity in Islamic uh, classical resources. And every time I read something, I think, well, how can I implement this in those countries that have you know, penal codes that you know, punish by death? So I, you know, and, and so it's, a, it's both a good thing and a bad thing, but because for me, it uh, indicated my first ever experience working in a collective towards certain concrete changes, both at the level of theory and at the level of application. It was extremely important to me, and also it was not unplanned. It was one of those barakah, one of those gifts that Allah gave me. And the people that I formed the, the organization Sisters in Islam with, there were eight of us, uh, they're all friends of mine now, and they're all still engaged in this work. And so when you look back 25, 30 years, and you have that kind of history, um, it's actually a very lovely thing, because we do keep moving, we do keep facing the challenges, but at the same time, it has not led to you know, the kinds of um, power seeking that can come when you um, achieve a, a certain modicum of success. Um, so while I had the university relationship, I also had the public relationship, as again, you know, was important for shaping my, my movement forward. But at the university, I actually proposed to do a research what I, on what I called towards pro-faith feminism. So it lets you know that even 30 years ago, I think I was interested to move forward, but I can't say that I achieved it by the time I left Malaysia, uh, which was in 1992. Three years later, the Beijing conference happened. Now, we are all in the, either the light or the shadow of the United Nations, depending on how you want to look at it. And we're all in the light of the shadow because the United Nations proposed 
at least in theory, to address what is the understanding universally of human rights. And one of the first things that occurred within it is that people challenged whether or not the notion of human was inclusive of certain particularities. So by uh, 1979, when the uh, Committee for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, OCDO, was launched, it was already clear that even within the United Nations attempt to be able to address the universal human being, the human being had been shaped by a certain uh, patriarchal privileging, and we still have this problem. So you can't talk about human rights unless you also talk about what it means to be human. And for me, and the research that I do in terms of looking at you know, the aspect of human dignity in all of my work, it is really clear that the shaping of the Islamic discourse about human rights, because we did have it, even though it wasn't under that title. That title became more vogue in the middle part of the um, 20th century you know, with the launching of the UN. Um, we didn't necessarily call it human rights, although those words do exist, hukukul insan, hukukul law, you know, hukukul law. So we do have the notion, but you know, these conversations sort of all came together. And in our legacy within the Islamic uh, intellectual uh, history, the tendency to ascribe full humanity to men was rampant. And this meant that women had to either compare to or always be left deviant towards what was the full human being. And for a long time, we reacted to this. We are constantly trying to you know, have a sort of be tagged on and included. Um, when people give examples, for example, about women who fought in wars along with the Prophet وسلم, I think, well, that's just a horrible human example, period. Why would we want to even apply it to women? But because the rubric of understanding what makes you fully human was based on the male person, and by the way, if you want examples of this, do ask me during question and answers, if they don't come up anyway. Um, while we're always comparing ourselves to that rubric, in a way, we will never be fully human. So when we talk about things like gender equality, we're trying to make the language neutral enough that it doesn't matter. You can achieve this kind of equality no matter what gender, you know, or what gender orientation. But um, actually, um, in the, the movement towards CEDAW, the consideration specifically of the ways in which women are disenfranchised by entire systemic locations within not only laws and policies, but also in terms of culture. So of course, with regard to Islam, the ways in which the primary intellectual legacy was shaped was not inclusive. It did not have that notion of what we call Musawa. It had a notion of male superiority. Women had a location in the society. Women had a location in the religion. Women had a location in the cultures. But her relationship was always going to be uh, relative to where the man would sit. And the man had the full mobility to go you know, anywhere. In other words, again, he was fully human. And she was a relative human being. Um, so for me, in the research that I did, starting with, you notice the title of my first book is Quran and Woman. I really was trying to highlight um, the necessity of being able to put the focus on women and to have that focus become a central component of how it is that we even analyze text. 
And because Islam has this text-based uh, thrust to its tradition, taking the opportunity to step back and in some ways using the same methodologies that were used for Quranic analysis uh, throughout the history of the discourse and showing even there where the need to be able to be explicitly inclusive with regard to gender um, was a necessary component of fulfilling the mandate of the revelation itself, which is guidance. <clears throat> you can't guide human beings by only guiding half, okay? So when the Beijing conference came in 1995, it followed uh, a meeting in Nairobi of 1985, um, <clears throat> but the one in Beijing in 1995 had the most visible presence of Muslim women ever and also since. And it was noticeable. And it was also noticeable amongst us who was there. I came with Sisters in Islam and we did some programs. And <clears throat> the focus on Islam was highlighted at that conference by two dominant voices that would shape the discourse for the next 20 years. And the names that I give to them are the names that over time have worked to be able to you know, be, I think, good identifying characteristics, but again, they can be challenged. So one I'm going to call secular Muslim feminist. Now, all of these words need to be unpacked, but for a moment, I want you to kind of go with me on it because their proposal was, we will defer to the um, construction of these international documents um, for the achievement of full human dignity for all women, including Muslim women. Okay, so again, I'm going to make the <coughs> conversation come back to Muslim women because that was the specific focus. But um, there are obviously questions in terms of you know other uh, religions or people without religion, etc. So, in order for them to challenge, especially policies and laws and cultures that restricted women's human rights in their understanding of it, they needed to remove religion from the discourse. And they particularly needed to remove Islam. Because <clears throat> the conclusion was you cannot have both Islam and human rights. And this was the location of feminism. You cannot have both Islam and feminism. So it was sort of an oxymoron to put the two things together, and they agreed with that, and that was their location. Now, um, as critical as I am of this from that pro-faith you know, trajectory that I had, um, you must understand that, again, we're looking years past, and there has been some utility there, which, again, if you um, need further elaboration, ask me about it during the questions and answers. The other dominant voice that was there was funded and supported by you know, the almighty oil dollars, so the Wahhabi Salafi position, because at that time, the rise and the strengthening of what we call political Islam was already in play. And the impact of political Islam on women is not all bad, although I, you know, I say that because, again, I'm looking back over history. And in fact, I think about uh, Dr. Ziba Mir Husseini's uh, statement that Islamic feminism is the unwanted child of political Islam. Because political Islam brought the debates to how we adjudicate what is the sort of ummatic, you know, the ummah impulse of Islam under the rubric of the nation state. And then how does the nation state, whether Muslim majority or with Muslim minorities, how does the nation state identify 
and locate itself within these international initiatives and within these programs with regard to human rights. Um, and that was actually the, the main thing that happened with regard to political Islam that was beneficial in terms of the development of Islamic feminism. But they <clears throat> determined that we didn't need anything that came from the West and we didn't need anything that came from the North and we didn't need anything that was called universal when the architects were the same colonizing forces that had come and invaded you know, our countries. So um, we have a precedent in our own tradition as Muslims and we only need Islam and of course we only need the true Islam. And so they, they put, and in fact, I just moved into a, a new house and so I had to unpack and repack my library. And they gave out little booklets, the wisdom behind the Islamic position on women. And they were also adamant that you cannot have both Islam and human rights. So I found this agreement uh, between the opposing forces to be um, an important meeting point of really how it is that the debates began to move. But in 1995, when we were there, even though we had already uh, been working since 1989 uh, with sisters, we were a little bit confounded exactly how to locate ourselves because we were determined to challenge the manifestations of gender limitations within the Islamic discourse and obviously within Islamic public policy, particularly with regard to um, personal status laws. And yet we were not leaving Islam out of the debates. Um, and so we were stuck between these two positions. And what I found interesting is that there was an attempt because of the presence of so many Muslim women from all over the world there was an attempt to have meetings to bring those parties together because we were on somebody else's ticket to get there, but then we had a chance to network. So we did, we tried to have meetings every night and they ended up into shouting sessions. Because these two sides could not figure out a way to be able to adjudicate over that block. You cannot have both Islam and human rights. And so they just sort of settled back into their positions. And even though we did not feel at aligned with one side or the other in any a complete way, from that point on, especially in terms of being able to get funding to support our work, we were characterized by each party as being a member of the other party. We were considered to be secular feminists because we challenged the theoretical location of the Islamic discourse over what it means to be a human being. So any challenge was taken to be, you know, therefore you're against Islam, you know this, they still do this now. But uh, you know, people like me who was in hijab and people who um, you know, aligned themselves with their identity as Muslim and did not want to leave out Islam from the discourse um, were considered by the secular feminists to all be Islamists. So we were all political Islamists. And, and you know, it was interesting for me because I think that I've always been a sort of on a radical edge but sometimes I would go to places to speak with, you know, but this was before my you know, name recognition, and people would not want to sit with me because it's like, oh, that's hijabi woman and she's going to do this and she's going to do that. You know, and then I got up to speak and the exact same people would then want to come and engage me. And I always thought that was very interesting and that's because we were still fractured and the fragments had not yet figured out ways in which they could complement each other and we could go forward. Um, so that was the beginning for me of understanding that there were two sides. But the most important thing is that that led to what would become necessary in order to articulate 
some type of, of relationship between the two. And that is, as I always say, that in every conversation, people are galvanized behind the meanings of certain words, but they don't always make those meanings obvious. Instead, they take it for granted. So when they say Islam, they mean something, but they don't often say what it is, or they say something which is outrageous. Islam is terrorism, right? We've heard that a lot in the last 10, 15 years. And when they say it, you, you understand that every conversation that they have is going to be uh, filled in by this, the, the meaning that they're ca carrying with them. But when they're in a conversation with someone else who has a different meaning, they will be arguing because they haven't really laid the ground rules about you know, what is exactly the parameters of this term. And in the discourse that occurred in Beijing in 1995, the idea that you could not have both Islam and feminism, or you couldn't have both Islam and human rights, spent more time interrogating the meanings of the word feminism and the word human rights than they did with the other element, which is Islam. Who defines it? and whose definition has the power and authority to be put into implementation, whether this be implementation within your own personal family and your household or your community or the state. And whenever a single definition becomes encoded in the laws, it means it will close out other definitions. And so we worked a lot since 1995 to take more agency with regard to how Islam is defined, how Islam is adjudicated, who gets to be included in it, who gets to be excluded, and on what basis. And the idea that we would interrogate Islam as much as we would interrogate the terms human rights and feminism was the part of the conversation which was in fact unique. It was unprecedented for people who had been marginalized within Muslim contexts to then challenge how Islam was being used against them. Who had the power to make these types of assertions and what were the consequences on their identification with Islam when you know, they would say, you know, you're, you're inspired by the West, so therefore you can't do this thing, you know, that's outside of Islam, et cetera, et cetera. So we were, we were in fact being closed off from an essential part of our identity because we kept deferring to or reacting to definitions of Islam that we had not ourselves been a part of constructing. But if you think about it, actually all religions are human constructs. Even when those religions, and again, in, in my definition of religion, you can't have a religion without some orientation towards what is sacred, what is ultimate, what is holy, what is capital O other, you know, the non-ordinary. So there has to be some element of transcendent. So even, even when religions have a reference to or direct themselves to, with regard to a certain notion of what is sacred or holy, everything that they do after that, they construct. And so one of the fun things about, in terms of my, because when I came to Malaysia in 1989, I came with all of the research that I had done that became the book Quran and Woman, which is now 25 years old. But I um, had not understood how important it was to think about what would be the method of constructing and reconstructing our notion of what is religion and our notion of what is Islam until I had this encounter with ideas about public policy and about sort of living cultures. And this is what happens when you come from a minority context and also in my case, um, a Muslim by choice. So 
<clears throat> from then on, um, it was much more important to always lay the foundation of where you would go in the conversation by stating what was your claim with regard to certain key terms. And once the definition of Islam was interrogated equally with the definitions of things like human rights and feminism, it was possible to see why it was that these two sides at the Beijing conference could say the same thing. You cannot have both Islam and human rights. And, and yet, and still not see why it is that they were in cooperation. And that is because, you know, they both presumed only a patriarchal interpretation of what is the meaning of the word Islam. And in fact, all of us did. And in fact, often in the work that's being done now in terms of alternative articulations of how to be Muslim, like the Inclusive Mosque Initiative, there is still sometimes a tendency to defer back to you know, what is a real mosque or you know, you know, a proper aid and those kinds of statements because the references are always back to the old patriarchal models. And in terms of the political, the political Islamic location, <clears throat> Again, those um, expressions are not singular. There is a wide diversity, but there is a tendency to re-inscribe a necessary hegemonic relationship between the male and the female, and that there is no other way to operate in Islam unless you have that, because in fact, that is the way that Islam had operated for so long in so many different contexts. But actually, and this is you know, um, about the methodology, Actually, if we look at the components of the discourse, even throughout all of the Islamic intellectual legacy, we can actually determine to what extent it is that while we refer to the primary sources as divine, so the Quran and Revelation as a divine source revealed to the Prophet, upon him be peace, who also in terms of Islam and Hadith become like a divine source, in order to use those sources to actually construct laws and to actually shape culture, humans intervene. And this is actually a beautiful thing. It's not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing when someone's interventions becomes asserted as the law of the land or the rule of the household without the possibility of negotiating new parameters to what is allowed in that definition. So one of the main tasks before us when we left Beijing in 1995 was to make our presence as the middle group known, to make it known that it is possible to both challenge the status quo with regard to what is Islam, how it's adjudicated, how it's used in the public space, how it is used in discourse, to challenge that, to show the elements of its construction heretofore, and then to be a part of constructing new knowledge that is new understandings of Islam by actually being a part of making those constructions. So we had to take on Islam as our own and to show the ways in which we observed that it had been constructed in the past and to, uh, to go willingly into making new constructions for the future. And then obviously we also had to take on the human rights discourse and the feminist discourse for the ways in which they were implicated in excluding the inclusion of our own definitions in the way in which Islam is adjudicated. 
Now, this last element I found to be interesting for you know, at least 10 or 15 years, because actually the international bodies, like the United Nations, you know, the World Bank, and all of these bodies, they operate with an understanding of Islam that they have inherited from the most conservative and patriarchal representations of Islam that is assigned by the state. And they say, you know, it's not our right uh, to, in, to, to interfere with how you know, a, a person or a group or a country wants to express itself religiously. So they become complicit in um, locking in this patriarchal definition and making it even more difficult to be able to uh, challenge some of the consequences of those particular sort of patriarchal definitions. Um, so we've had our work cut out for us because we have to advocate at a number of levels for the inclusion of new understandings of what is Islam. And I also find it kind of funny because actually if you look at you know, Islam's you know, 14 centuries, there have always been uh, expansions and contractions in the way in which the discourse had gone, has gone over many things. So there's never, it's not really static but we were really heels down set to keep the gender binary and hegemony in place. So it was much more difficult uh, to dismantle the location of uh, male privileging and patriarchal deference um, in the conversation, but that's exactly what becomes the, the strength of the methodology for Islamic feminism. And that is that we make this path as we walk it. And so we don't have to get permission to be included in our own identity. It doesn't mean that there's not opposition, obviously, but when we stop needing to take permission you know, from the bearded mullahs and the ayatollahs and maulanas and ulama, when we stop needing to take permission from them and we give ourselves permission to do it, how do we then adjudicate to have some authority along those lines? So the next phase of, the, of the, the gender work that I was involved in at the time was to actually begin to tackle specific policies in the way in which they had been constructed and then applied. And we would use a return to the primary sources, which is again, the legacy of political Islam. This is an Islamist primary objective. We must go back to the source. Well, we would use that methodology with a lens of critical reading for gender location. So we didn't just take it for granted. Instead, we actually looked at the elements in the constructions of gender relations, and we determined that there was, first of all, such a variety, or ikhtilaf, differences of opinion, that there was such a variety, how do we ever come forward with the idea that there is a single, solitary, unitary definition of Islam, and that somehow you go against it by doing you know, X, Y, or Z. So we actually find that it is of importance in reconstructing Islam that you also revisit Islam's intellectual past, and that you take agency with regard to challenging the extent to which it may be inclusive of or not inclusive of all the members of the community. But then you also have to work at the level of the nation state, which is a reality. And again, I'm not advocating necessarily for good or bad, but it is a reality. So that means that we have to work within that 
uh, context because after the end of colonialism, Islamic uh, majority nation states and places that have substantial Muslim minorities like uh, India, they codified Muslim personal status laws and then it becomes the law of the state. So the state becomes the instrument that enforces and reinforces um, some of the limitations that have been encoded in Muslim personal status law throughout uh, the centuries. And when you look at, for example, the Quran, the marriage, what I used to call the marriage of subjugation is taken for granted. It's taken for granted that women will become appendages to men and that the only way for there to be a marriage is for certain power dynamics to constantly be in place. And even though uh, the you know, original conversation about you know, you know, the, the marriage contract and how it would work was meant to be able to in some way honor uh, this second class citizen, you know, making the mahar or the dawi go to her as opposed to uh, you know, going to the father, that kind of thing. Or, you know, even though there were all these measures that were put into place, nothing dismantled the location of uh, hegemony from that uh, contract and within all of the Muslim cultures, and I mean all of the Muslim cultures in which uh, this notion of marriage was put into place. And it occurred to us that not only all of the pieces in the puzzle of how it is that we challenge the implementation of laws that discriminate against women, which again, this is the inspiration of CEDO, the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women, even though it was necessary to challenge that, the question becomes, how do you construct something else? And in our work from 1995 until the launching of Musawa in 2009, we networked with other women's organizations all over the world, again, Muslim minority contacts and Muslim majority contacts, and we found that um, similar aspects were manifest in different nation states and there were different emphasis on the different um, aspects of it. For example, the age of marriage uh, versus the, the issue of polygamy versus the issue of um, citizenship, whether or not if a woman married a non, say in Jordan, a non-Jordanian man, could she pass citizenship to her children? Well, the answer was no, but a Muslim man in Jordan could marry a non-Jordanian woman and his children would have full citizenship. So that was an important component in the, the, the development of the long-term strategies um, in these debates. And that is that when the state becomes the architect of the ways in which certain codes are going to be adjudicated, you must challenge the state's location, usually constitutionally, some countries like Saudi Arabia don't have a constitution, but you must challenge the state's location in the constitution that guarantees equal citizenship to all of its citizens and then denies women actual equal access with regard to secondary rules like this. And these secondary rules were all linked back to the notions of Muslim personal status law and the way in which Islam allowed them to make exceptions to even what was foundational to the development and sustaining of the nation state. 
Um, and so we look for these kinds of caveats in the conversation and we look for ways in which we can network with other uh, women and men across the world who are trying to establish another understanding of marriage. And this is an understanding of marriage that is literally unprecedented when all, within all the 14th centuries of Islam and that is the marriage of equality and we call it Musawa. So the launching of Musawa for me was a, such an amazing turning point because you know when you when you see yourself as a little person but you see yourself as uh, you know uh, working very hard and passionately towards something sometimes what you're working towards is clear but sometimes it's you know a little bit ambiguous maybe i'm just looking for what is right and you know what is true and what is just what does that mean in actual terms so i was still you know s sort of running uh, sheerly on passion um, and because in the context of the United States, we don't have Muslim personal status law. And actually, mercifully, we will never have Muslim personal status law because Muslims never agree on anything. And we have such a diversity of Muslims in the United States, they can never decide whether or not they're going to be Maliki or Hanafi or whether they're going to be, you know, a sort of ikhtilaf, you know, a variety. They never decide. Everybody's going to take, you know, issues. So it turns out to be a mercy. But it also meant that in a way I was sort of displaced because I had no work that I could do at home. All my work is, you know, a part, you know predominantly international. Um, because the, the places where the limitations on women's access to the full karama, the human dignity that Allah has endowed for every human being, the places where this is most strongly adjudicated is within those places where there is some established understanding of Muslim personal status law. And it could be even ad hoc. It may not be the law of the state. But if within the freedoms of the state, you have the capacity to be able to denote religious exemptions from certain things, it means that you're still using the instruments of the state in order to implement you know, your understandings of Islam and therefore you know, marriage of, of subjugation continue to spread uh, even when they moved into places that constitutionally were um, dedicated to equality between the members. Um, so with the launching of Musawa, I literally saw women and men that I had worked with for the previous 20 years come to this gathering. And I all of a sudden, you know, people say you have these kind of moments when you go to Hajj or when you have a really big Eid celebration, you know, somewhere when you're, you know, in the diaspora. I literally understood that I was a part of a global movement with the launching of Musawa. But I also understood that I had deferred to the challenges within the understandings of certain terminology in a way not to offend my desire primarily to uh, maintain what I call the pro-faith thrust. That somehow I too had borrowed a notion of Islam that limited me in terms of other forms of identification for myself. And at that time I was living in Indonesia um, and Indonesia and uh, Southeast Asia, because I had also lived in Malaysia, really inspired me. It's a funny place as an African-American to find I'm always so inspired by um, Southeast Asia. Um, but it really inspired me to understand that the cultural context, in fact, the sort of ecological context of where Islam establishes itself has an impact on the extent to which Islam will develop with, you know, different branches and, you know, how much flora will be on those branches, you know, think about as a tree. 
Um, and um, Indonesians have a very comfortable location with being Muslim and not Arab, right? So this is not something being against Arab, but just to say that I myself, when I um, was embraced by Islam in 1972, the first thing on my agenda was try to get to the Arabic-speaking world because I wanted to see real Islam. You know how that goes. So you know, I went and I saw real Islam, and that was <laughs> it was fine from then on. Um, so um, the idea for the Indonesians was that they have their own culture, and the way they articulate it is so unapologetically, so beautiful and so gentle, and at the same time. You know, there are more um, Muslims in Indonesia than there are in all the Arabic-speaking countries combined. And they're only 88% of the population. So their constitution is established in what they call Pancasila, which is the notification of the affirmation of religious diversity. Now, they still haven't gotten to the place where you can identify as not having a religion. And you know, there's still a future. They've made some changes. But at least it was not encoded on the idea that we are going to be an Islamic state. It is a secular democracy. And being a secular democracy changes how we might feel or respond to the word secular because secularism is not uniform. There are places where secularism means you must exclude religion and you must banish any manifestations of those. Okay, you definitely see this in Europe, right? Um, but there are places where secularism means, and I, I sort of take this from Abdullahi and Naim's book on Islam and the secular state. It means that human beings are the only ones who can adjudicate the state. Even if human beings are inspired ethically, for example, or spiritually by their understanding of Islam, you cannot establish Islam at the level of the state without the human component of implementation and affirmation. So in other words, the state is a human instrument as well. So if religion, including the religion of Islam, is a construct, if it's made by human beings, and the state and the state's understanding of itself is a construct that is constructed by human beings, in fact, negotiating the humanness of both of these you know, realities is one of the most important ways forward for us. But you have to, this is just me, I'm sorry, the retired university professor, you have to do your research in that you have to peel back the layers and to look at how the puzzle is put together. Because from a distance, it looks like a solid, beautiful portrayal of whatever is being depicted. Could be a kitty cat, but from the distance, it looks like a kitty cat, but when you get up close, you will see that all of these little pieces of the puzzle are there. And looking at what exactly holds the various pieces together in different contexts is one of the things about Musawa that inspires me the most. Because it is not proposing, first of all, it's not an organization. It is not proposing that one set of rules fits all, or that every nation state and Muslim majority context has the same uh, particular uh, priority of concerns, but that even though there is a necessity for a variety of approaches that have been uh, honed out of this puzzle in order to address a specific situation, that again, certain rubrics of understanding were, were in place that need to also be a part of the challenge of how the puzzle is set forward. Right? So you can look at it sort of like the framework or the table on which the puzzle is being put together. And that that also is a construct. And that when that construct proposes, as it does, and it has throughout history, 
that Islam and Islamic law fundamentally must be for justice, the question about whether or not Muslim women experience justice became a major element in how to move forward. So what we did is we take what is a principal aspect of the classical discourse about Islam, which is that it's for justice, human dignity, and uh, human rights, but we challenge it to the extent to which it has not been equally put into application with uh, you know, the girl and the woman in those societies. And we look at all the elements of uh, that deprivation as a way to be able to um, address what happens in any one particular country, which you know, we, don't, we don't necessarily address every country, but we, we liaise with other countries and we do these workshops to prepare people to be able to challenge it within their own uh, context. So the reality is, there's a lot of work that's ahead of us, but the capacity to be able to address this work is to accept that not everyone is going to be located at exactly the same place, which is you know, what we learned in, in Beijing 1995, and that that's okay. To accept that we will have different locations was not possible for us in 1995. We were still thinking that somehow we came together, we were going to unify all of Islam and all Muslims, and we were going to unify them under our vision. And instead, we understand that as far as the main trajectory, the thrust for equality and justice for all, not just Muslims, not just men, is the only standing principle that we have to maintain, and that after that, everything is subject to change and viable to the possibilities of reform. So we do this in application to specific uh, countries when you know, we're invited and we do workshops, or sometimes regionally, and then we must learn from the participants how the arguments are being uh, constructed against them, so that they have the capacity to be able to uh, sort of wield the tools of reformist Islam and Islamic feminism for their own usage. Today, this is my last thought, today we still have people who identify as secular Muslim feminists, people who do not want to engage Islam as a discourse, they do not want Islam to be a part of movements forward, they, that still exists and we work with them and as far as we can work with them because there is a place where there'll be overlap. So for example, if you're working on violence against women, it doesn't matter whether or not you are a believer. You can still work and we can still work there. Um, and today, there are also people who are adamant that we must work from an Islamic perspective. I am one of those people. But when I say we're working from an Islamic perspective, I am clear that there is no single definition of Islam and that there are a variety of definitions. So it's easier for me to embrace the diversity. So yes, that means I also you know, might embrace the Muslimness of people like ISIS, but that doesn't mean I agree with the way in which they assert their Islam and the way in which they violate other people's rights in the name of Islam. But it's not a you know, us and them thing anymore. We're all in it together. And eventually we will see that if we don't understand how to work with someone, even when you disagree with that person, is a necessary component of how you demonstrate what you say you want for yourself. When you say you want full human dignity and acceptance and respect for your particularities, then you must also extend it to other people. So for me now, Islamic feminism harks back to a definition that Simone de Beauvoir uh, gave, and that is, 
feminism is the radical notion that women are human beings. I don't have to compare myself to anyone. I don't have to have approval for myself from anyone. I was created by Allah to be fully agent of Allah on this earth. So that has become my way of combining Islam and feminism. And Islamic feminism is an Islamically framed articulation of how it is that we work to establish equality and justice for all, including Muslim women. Thank you very much.